right? Micah chapter 6. I've been telling you uh, as we've gone along that there are three different rounds of oracles. Again, an oracle is an announcement from God concerning judgment or salvation delivered through a prophet. And so Micah is the prophet, of course, in this case. And there are three rounds of oracles, each featuring judgment and salvation. And we're beginning uh, with judgment today. Um, the the that will all turn towards salvation in chapter 7. But uh, each round begins, and you'll see that chapter 6, verse 1, begins the same as the other two rounds, with the command to God's people to hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. And of course, this doesn't mean simply to listen doesn't mean even to comprehend with our minds. It means that we truly take God's word to heart and respond as he means us to, with repentance as far as he means us to, and obedience. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin, okay? Father, we thank you for this time that you have set aside for us on the first day of the week to assemble and hear your word. We ask, Father, we must ask, because we're certainly not capable of this on our own. We ask that you would give us ears to hear. Without you, Father, this will just be words on par with any other word, or it will be information, perhaps a little more interesting than other information. We need ears to hear, Father, that we will receive this as your word, the word of the one true God. I pray, Father, that you would give us faith to believe this message. I pray, Father, that you would give us conviction, give us a new insight into the true magnitude of our sin against you. And I pray, Father, that you would grant us repentance And every soul here would fly to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and find in him all of our salvation. We pray that you would help us. Be pleased, Father, to magnify yourself before us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by reading Micah chapter 6. We'll read verses 1 to 8. Our primary concentration is going to be verses 1 to 5. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord 
and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? I want you to look back down at verse 3. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. One of the more fascinating things about this verse is that in the context of the message of Micah, it is sins that we would consider to be on the horizontal scale that the people of God are being indicted over. The sin that takes place from person to person. We would put these sins in the last six of the commandments of the ten, right? Uh, After God has made it very clear that he alone is to be worshipped and we are to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and, and so on, then we deal with sins on that horizontal scale. And that's what Micah is talking about. Micah talks about sins like social injustice, corruption on every level of leadership. He talks about the oppression of the poor. Um, as we're going to see next Sunday, Lord willing, um, he talks about how those who are at the, the top rung of the, the social ladder will uh, persecute those who are the, at the bottom feeding social position, how the uh, people in the, the marketplace, the traders, will take advantage of their customers. That's the kind of sin that's being talked about. This way sin. Not, not so much this way sin. But after, in the middle of all that indictment, the Lord says, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. The Lord takes very seriously and very personally our sins against others. The Lord himself in heaven takes very personally our sins against others. I wonder if someone has ever offended you, deeply offended you, And when you have responded with the expression of your hurt, have they ever said to you, why are you taking it so personally? Or don't take it so personally. Let's lay out a general principle here. The um, more distant the relationship between the offender and the offended, the less personal any offense between them, right? The more distant the relationship, the less personal any offense. But the closer the relationship between offender and offended, the more personal the offense. So if a a stranger sticks a knife in your car tires, you're going to be offended. You're going to be aggravated and hurt and disadvantaged and so on, but you're not necessarily going to take that personally. You're a random stranger. Now, if, however, your son sticks a knife in your car tires, 
you might say, just as the Lord does, what have I done to you? How could you do this to me? How, we might not put it in these exact terms, but along the lines of, how have I wearied you? We would take it very personally. Today from Micah chapter 6, we are being given the opportunity. We might not think of hearing about sin and opportunity. But we are being given the opportunity to enter the courtroom of God and hear from his perspective what our sins mean. We are being given the opportunity to see our offense from the perspective of the offended God. And if we will hear his word as is called for, hear me, If you will hear his word as called for, I have no doubt in my mind that you will see your sin in a much needed light. And I believe that your sympathies in this court will lie with God completely. My hope is that your sin will become all the more detestable in your eyes and when we come to the conclusion, the cross of Jesus Christ all the sweeter. So again, in chapter 6, verse 1, the, the first verse of this last round of oracles begins with the call to hear. The setting here is a courtroom, courtroom scene, and God's indictment is being leveled against his people. He, in calling us to give our defense, calls the mountains and the hills to witness the proceedings. He calls the mountains to be the courtroom audience. And I know that this seems strange. Let me try to cover this a little uh, quickly. Uh, why would he call the mountains to bear witness in the proceedings? I think that there might be a couple reasons. Perhaps God means for there to be a stark contrast between the long-standing faithfulness of the mountains and the fickle hearts of his people. But I think there's also could be something else here as well. Let's not forget the providential arrangement of the involvement of the mountains all through Israel's history. Where did God first give his covenant law to his people? It was upon Mount Sinai. When the people of God entered into the promised land, half of the tribes stood upon Mount Gerizim, the other half upon Mount Ebal, and they recited back and forth, the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience to that covenant law. So the mountains were there from the beginning for the giving of the law and the receiving and the recitation of blessings and curses for our relationship to the law, whether good or evil. And of course, we know that the mountains, the mountain in Samaria and the mountain in Jerusalem, became the staging ground for the sins of the nation. And let's consider this in context as well to carry on this this theme of the mountains being involved. In the very beginning of Micah's message, God threatened judgment upon the mountains. He said, I will come and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under my judgment. So it's fitting that the mountains are here to bear witness to these proceedings, and it's fitting that they know why they will come under the judgment of God. Now, of course, remember, 
we've been talking with our uh, kids on Wednesday night. And it's been a few weeks, so they should remember, but I'll forgive them if they don't. Uh, we've been talking about reading the Bible and understanding it according to the genre in which it's delivered, the kind of writing. So um, we've been talking about reading poetry and metaphors and, and things like that. And um, I think they've got a, a pretty good grasp on it. So here, the Lord is not speaking literally in that the mountains all of a sudden can listen to God and respond appropriately. He's not saying they actually have personhood. They're not made in his image. But the mountains here are being personified as the witnesses in this case against the people of God. Now let's move on to the actual indictment. God invites his people to give their defense for their actions there in verse 1. But there's no protest of innocence. We don't see any kind of defense being raised. Instead, when we come to verse 3, we have God speaking. Here he is leveling his accusation against his people. How do you expect God to speak? What tone will God strike as he accuses his people? It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, when you think of courtroom proceedings and you think of a prosecutor, you think of that prosecutor, you know, staring daggers into the defense. Or you think of him spewing all kinds of, you know, that's typical TV and movie, at least. But God doesn't take any of that tone or, or look. We don't have that. Instead, we have him pleading and speaking very tenderly to his people. Oh, my people. This is tenderness. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. He's not wagging his finger in their face. He is pleading in love. And how does he sound? Sound is the key word. How does God sound? He sounds baffled. Right? That's how he sounds. It's not that God is baffled. It's not that he's confused over the what or the why of sin, the when, how much, all of that. He's not confused. So why does God sound baffled? Because sin is baffling. Sin is confusing. Sin, I mean, doesn't make sense. It's completely illogical. Now, we, we know that we sin because of the corruption of our hearts that we've inherited from Adam, that guilt and that nature. So we can explain it theologically, but in the end, sin is inexplicable. It's illogical. It doesn't make sense. It's baffling. Not only is it illogical, when you really get down to it, it's diabolical. That's what sin is. So why does God sound baffled? Though he's not confused. I mean, he knows the condition of our hearts, and not only the condition of our hearts, but every single motion of our hearts. Even that which is far beyond our own detection and understanding. God knows, but he sounds baffled because sin doesn't make sense, Christian. Sin is baffling. We, we can't explain it away, but we try. There are three ways, I think, at least that I thought of, 
three ways to deny your sin. One, when you get accused of a particular sin, you can deny the existence of that action. You can say, what you're saying, I didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't do it. You just deny its existence altogether. A second way to deny sin is to acknowledge the action, but justify it. Make it out like the evil is actually good. It was right for you to do. The, the wrong is actually a good thing. That's a second way to deny it. Either deny its existence or try to, to explain it, to justify it, why you did what you did. And a third way to deny your sin is to minimize it. To say it's not as bad as what God says it is. And that's what the person does who is surprised at your hurt when they've offended you. When, when you respond to the child or the parent or someone in close relationship who has offended you, when you respond with exasperation, with hurt, with, with a, a grief, and they say to you, why are you taking it so personally? Or just downright, don't take it personally. They are trying to minimize the offense. Someone stabs you in the back, metaphorically. Don't take that knife so personally. That's minimizing sin. Acknowledging the thing, but minimizing it. This is how we often deal with our sin against God. We minimize it. As though we would say to God, when God says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? We would say, Wait, you didn't have anything to do with this. I wasn't even thinking of you. You weren't in the picture. Don't take it so personally. Obviously, he takes all sin. Not only that which is personally immediately directed against him, but that which is directed on what we consider the horizontal scale, person to person, interpersonal sins. He takes those very personally. Do we get that? Any sin that we commit, no matter who it's against, is ultimately against the Lord God. Why? Remember, general principle the further the distance between offender and offended, the less personal the sin. But the closer that relationship between offender and offended, the more personal the sin. And such is the nature of our relationship with the God who made us in His image, that every sin is intensely personal. When David had sinned with Bathsheba, do you think Uriah was offended? Well, he would have been very offended if he had known what David had done with his wife or why he had been left alone in the heat of battle. Do you think that Uriah's parents were offended by what David had done to their son? Of course. They would have been terribly offended. But to whom did David confess his sin? And what did he say in that confession? He said, against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's a lot more personal and painful when a parent beats his child than when the school bully beats the same kid. It's a lot more personal and painful when your son mocks you than when someone else's son mocks you. There is a kind of covenant relationship 
between members of a family that is obviously above and beyond and closer than any other relationship. So that grave offenses are not just offenses. They're betrayals. And that's what Israel, and that's what we have with God. We exist with God in covenant relationship. Israel was spiritually married to God so that all of her idolatries were actually adultery. And that's why the Lord says, What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Because she had grown as a nation wearied of the Lord. She withdrew from the Lord. She grew tired of the Lord and she became unfaithful. And he is in essence saying, What did I do against you that would justify what you have done against me? If there is a sin in your life, that you are continuing in. There's a good possibility that you don't even factor God into the equation. He's not in the picture. And yet hear what he says. What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? This is what the Lord speaks to his people. Maybe... Your sin is just you, and nobody else knows. And so you think, well, it's just me. Nobody else is involved, so no one else is hurt. No one else is offended. Or perhaps you uh, may be in a sin that is complicit with another person. They are actually with you in that sin. But again, you know, you can't think of anybody else that is being hurt in that. Or as in... The case with uh, Israel, the scenario would often be, you know, we have the the trader in the marketplace dealing with the customer and he takes advantage of the the customer's bottom-feeding social position or the customer's ignorance and he deceives him, takes advantage, gets rich off that person while that person is a little poorer and the trader may be accused of his sin, says, okay, I did that thing and they were hurt, but that's it. I mean, and who are they? They're the only one who is offended or they might even say, hey, What they don't know can't hurt them, right? How often do we even say that? But the Lord says, what have I done to you? Because the offense is against him personally before anyone else. What does this, you name the sin, have to do with Jesus? What does any particular sin have to do with Jesus? Do we dare ask why he takes it so personally? And isn't that our temptation when we look at some of the sins of the Bible? We might say, hey, David, he deserved to die, and he didn't die. But Adam and Eve, they basically just got their hands caught in the cookie jar. I mean, they ate an apple, an apple for crying out loud, and death and ruin for the human race and all the created order? What's the deal with that? An apple and death and ruin? That deserves maybe a little slap on the hand, not this cosmic scale overreaction. Why does God take sin so personally that he would say, what have I done to you? What have I done to you that would justify what you are doing against me? He takes it so personally because every choice for something besides him is a rejection of him. And we can't help that truth. We can't. 
Remember when the people of Israel were clamoring for a king like the other nations, and Samuel, who was judge at the time, took it personally. What did the Lord say to Samuel? He said, they have not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me. All they wanted was a king, but a choice for something in his place or even beside him is a rejection of him. And God will not be had beside an apple. God will not be had beside a king. God will not be had beside mammon or anything else in all creation. So there's that truth. Every choice of something beside him is a rejection of him. Not only that, but every time we sin against God, what are we expressing with our hearts? That he is not enough for us. That he is not good enough. That we can't trust him enough. He's not trustworthy. That he is not sufficient. That's what we're expressing with our sin. So, do you want to tell God when he says, what have I done to you? Do you want to tell him that he's being overdramatic? The clay should be very careful about how it speaks to the potter. When you sin against another person, do you confess it to the Lord? Let's let's just talk for a moment about what we would think are not big deal sins. If you're hypercritical of another person, if you're just nitpicky, if you deceive, lose your temper with someone. If you hit someone back, do you tremble before God? Because God takes these sins, which are so light and person to person, He takes them personally. And here we are, we're the, we're the offender, surprised by the offended's tears. Why are you crying? What's the big deal? Don't take it so personally. I want you to, I want you to, we parked on this verse because I want you to meditate on the grief that God is expressing. And I hope that paying such close attention to the grief that God is expressing here will flip the switch and will go from the darkness of being deluded about what our sin is to the light of getting it. Getting better the magnitude of our sin against God and being honest about it. Why are we so quick to sin so personally against God? Let's move on to verses 4 and 5. This is key. This will help us to, well, to recognize our sin a little bit further, but also to overcome. The Lord says, For I brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Why are we so quick to sin personally against God? Because we are so quick to forget that all the good we have is from God personally. It's not just that he's pouring it out widely, kind of just throwing out his blessings over out there and whoever gets it, gets it, and whoever doesn't, doesn't. 
God gives his blessings personally. Personally. But we are quick to forget that good. And so we sin against him in a personal way. The Lord tells us that we must remember the salvation of God. God is telling his people, I have not burdened you. I unburdened you. I took your burden away. He says, I have not wearied you. I released you from your weary toil. He brought his people out of bondage in Egypt. And he gave them Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, the sibling trio that stood at the head of the nation. Moses, the deliverer and the lawgiver. Moses, uh, Aaron, rather, the, the consecrated high priest. And, and Miriam, their sister, who was the first prophetess in Israel and led the nation in song. You remember that after they came out of the Red Sea? He said, I gave you that, that leadership and that guidance. I brought you out of bondage. And then he says, Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. Let's quickly talk about this. The events that are being described here are from Numbers chapters 22 to 24. As the people were getting pretty close to the promised land, they had this battle with the Amorites and soundly defeated the Amorites by God's good grace. Balak, king of Moab, saw them defeat their enemies and all of his nation was in dread of what Israel was going to do them to them next. And so he hired Balaam, this uh, soothsayer. That's what he was, basically. Hired him to speak curses against Israel, to undo them and keep them from their inheritance. So Balaam comes, and the whole scenario is one of the more, honestly, amusing, laugh-out-loud scenarios, events in the Old Testament. But I don't have, I have to just cut it short. Balaam goes to to speak, and all that comes out after he's been paid to pour out curses is the richest, most elaborate blessing that you could possibly imagine coming out on Israel in that day. And and Balak, he's about to pull out of his hair. Eventually, he's just, he's, I hired you, I paid you to curse these people. And the best idea that Balak comes up with is, let's try to do this over there. Maybe you'll see them from a different angle, and then you'll be able to curse them. But still, all that God, all that Balaam can speak on God's people is blessing, because God does not intend them harm; He intends them good. God is not against His people; He is for His people. And He reminds them also in the second part of verse five. Look at it again. Remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Shortly after these events, Israel crossed over the Jordan River to their inheritance. Shittim was the uh, the last place on the eastern side of the Jordan River where they were, and they, this was a dry land crossing through, on, whatever you would say, the river to Gilgal on the west western shore. Every weapon raised against them failed, whether it was sword or curse. Every obstacle that was before them fled from before them, whether it was sea or or river. Israel's forgetfulness bred sin in her soul. And if they had received so much grace from God, how much more have we received? In Jesus Christ. Lavished upon us. Grace upon grace. 
Israel's redemption from Egypt by the sacrifice of that Passover lamb is a foreshadowing. And it's infinitely outdone by our redemption through the sacrifice of God's beloved Son from heaven. Moses and Aaron and Miriam giving the word and leading the people is a foreshadowing, and it's massively outdone by the truth that God has poured into our hearts the spirit of his Son. We have forgotten the grace of our God. Why are we so quick to sin so personally against God? Because we have forgotten the good that he has given to us so personally. We've acted without reference to him. The Lord said to David after David sinned, don't you remember what I did for you? He said, I anointed you as king over Israel. I gave you your rival's house. I gave you all of Israel and Judah to rule. And then he said, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Sin compounds. This is just a general truth, that sin compounds. And we can see it very clearly here. If you forget his salvation, if you forget his gospel, you will, guarantee it, fail him in further ways. So what do we do about this? How can we um, overcome our uh, inclination to forget? When's the last time you poured over the book of Ephesians? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then the rest of that letter, the letter unpacks that. When's the last time you meditated on God's message to us in Ephesians, of what the triune God has done for you in his amazing love and grace? See, Meditation is absolutely necessary. You, you ruminate over the scriptures, you, you rivet your attention on the word, and you ruminate it over long, over long enough until you are ravished by what God has done for you in Christ, and then, therefore, sin will become repulsive. Forget God, forget his gospel. We'll be quick to sin in other ways. And now verses 6 to 8. We know, we know we're guilty. Don't we? We know we're guilty of forgetting God and we know that we are guilty of sinning against Him further in very personal ways and, and not even factoring Him into the equation and thinking, what does He have to do with this? We sometimes sin against other peoples and just, you know, being very hypercritical and I wouldn't even think to confess that to God because what does He have to do with it? But He says, how have I wearied you? So what do we do? Here's the questions. The, these are rhetorical questions from Micah 6, verses 6 and 7. Look back there. What do we do? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Sounds like an okay idea, but we can do better than that. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? What is the most? I maybe possibly give? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? How do we return to him? You can see the progression of these sacrifices, can't you? But these are rhetorical questions, meaning each one 
expects an obvious answer and a negative answer. No, God does not require any of these things. But let us be very clear in our minds and in our hearts. If we are going to return to God, the ultimate sacrifice must be paid. And God did it. He gave up His firstborn Son. That is, the firstborn over all creation. The heir of heaven. The kingdom. And the heir of all things that we may return to God and be restored. He gave up His beloved Son. So we we forget God's sacrifice of His Son. For we sin very personally against God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. We sin grievously. But Jesus died not only for the byproduct sins, but the forgetfulness of our hearts as well. By the blood of Jesus Christ, we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Sin compounds, and our sin abounds. But where our sin has abounded, grace has abounded all the more. So now that we have received this marvelous grace, now what? License to sin? Do whatever we want? We don't have license to sin by this grace, but we have been freed. Freed by the grace of God and enabled by the Spirit of God to do as God requires of us. To do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. Sin is a very big deal. Don't deny its existence. Don't try to explain it away or justify it. Let's not minimize it. Every sin is directed very personally against God. Our sin is deep. Deeper than we know. But Christ and His love are deeper still. Let's return to God. Let's receive His grace by faith. Let's return to our God with all of our hearts.